this morning, I, I want to, uh, as we get ready to look at, consider James uh, 4, I want us to understand this is, this is a great day to be gathered with you, to be underneath the word of the Lord. And this is a harder hitting uh, passage than you might think at first glance. And so uh, I look forward to seeing what the Lord will do in us and through us this morning as we consider this passage. We're going to look directly at this passage for the most part of our message will come right from this text. We'll make some connections to some other scriptures as well. Uh, for those of you who might be a note taker, you might consider Second uh, Corinthians uh, 13.5 as something to jot down ahead of time. And um, you might consider Matthew 13, uh, 24 through 30 and 36 through 43, because uh, I will uh, jump to those as we go through this this morning. But um, so our first uh, aim here, we will we will read the passage and then we will go back and uh, divide it and make some applications along the way. And before we do that, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask by grace that you would reveal uh, genuine faith to us who believe that the testing of this, of our faith would prove to be genuine that our faith would prove to be genuine, that we would prove to be steadfast. And to those who may claim Christ but have not yet been transformed, I pray that today would be the day that the saving power of Jesus' death and resurrection would become a reality in their life. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 12. Uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge and that he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. This is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Thanks be to God. So three major issues going on in this passage. Three major uh, accusations. There's a heart problem. There's a worldly problem. 
And then at the end, there's just, there's a whole problem of blasphemy. So basically, here's this railing accusation against the community that has gathered here or that are gathered in uh, James's sphere of influence, right? There's, there's uh, three major points, accusations that he makes. You're, you're adulterous. You are, uh, you're, you are worldly and you are a blasphemous people. Wow. Heavy, right? Um, what we're going to see this morning is that James has been, and has, as we have been going through this, he's been um, explaining what an examination of the genuineness of the Christian faith is to look like. Uh, when the trials and the tests come, kind of the response for the believer is to examine his own life. There's a trial, there's a test that has come. Am I really in the faith? Am I steadfast? Has this trial produced in me a steadiness, a steadfastness, a turning myself to the Lord in times of trouble, or hasn't it? What what has it done? Is it genuine? And uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5 reiterates what James has been showing in these trials, that it should cause the Christian to examine themselves, um, to examine their lives according to the gospel, right? So in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, uh, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. So as we've come through this time of pandemic and church closers and back in March and all the stuff that is going on in the world and all that has gone on in the church, and I think the church's response to it, I think that 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 these closures and all of these things that have come upon the church recently have changed the landscape of church forever. I think that church will never, ever be the same. And I praise God for some things that will never be the same again. Uh, my hope is that the American church will never go back to the way that it, that it was in some ways. And that some things that were there before and what is left over from that era would continue to be purged from the church continually as we move forward. Because I believe that the time for entertainment, the time for consumer idolatry, the time for easy believism, I hope will give way to word-driven, gospel-centered ministry. My prayer is that the future church becomes distinct separate, and that the church has as her goal not to be like the world and to be embracing and to be uh, easy, but that the church has as its goal godliness, godliness over comfort, genuineness over popularity, faithfulness over being familiar. This is what my hope and my prayer is for the church and what these trials should produce in the household of faith. And as I was studying this this week, and you're going to think maybe I'm strange because I, I, I love old poetry from like the 1800s, right? And I'm, I'm reading through this passage, and there was this one poem that came to my mind, and I haven't read it since I was in my 20s, okay? But, but I'm sitting there at my study, and this poem came into my mind. The world is too much with us. And I want to read it because its words are profound 
220 years later. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. The sea that bears her bosom to the moon. The winds that will be howling at all hours. And are up gathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves not. Great God, I would rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, so I might, uh, so might I standing on this pleasantly have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. I love that poem because of what William Wordsworth is speaking there about look where we've gone. And should we be forlorn about should we be saddened, maybe, about where we've been? Shouldn't we be saddened about the way that we have embraced the world that's too much with us? Our focus has been too much on us, too much on the world, and not focused on Christ, and not focused on eternity, right? And not focused on the gospel and what that has meant to us. Well, worldliness has penetrated the church, it's penetrated the church individually and corporately. And the world is still now, 200 plus years later, too much with us. James addresses the issues in this text, causing so much striving in the community of faith. James says the community has two major issues that cause both strife and powerless prayer. And we're going to explore those issues as we look at the text this morning. I would like to pray once more before we dive deep into this text because I need his help. Father, we need your help this morning. Give us hearts of fertile soil that your word would land upon them this morning. May the pretenders be convicted. May the people of your promise be convinced of the truth of your word this morning. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you hear and you arrive and gather at church on Sunday morning, you begin to hear the prayers and you begin to hear uh, the praises. Do you ever pause for a moment and realize that we enter every Sunday morning, we enter a little bit stained. We come in just a little stained from the world. We come in with the stain of what we've watched in the news. We come a little stained maybe in what we've heard and listened to. Become a little stained by the things that we have engaged in during the week. Do you ever pause for a moment and realize that there's some filthiness of residual sin that has marked my week this week? That although I am saved, as saved as I'm ever going to be, but I realize that there's this residual place of sin in my heart. And this place has, and this, this residual sin in my heart has stained me. I come in stained, needing to be cleansed once again, needing to, to hear and know the good news of Jesus Christ once again, knowing that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of, of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Do we ever stop and pause and think about the stain that is upon us when we come in? Let's look at the first part of verse 1, and the big question that James asks. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
I want to pause there because there's, a, there's other questions that are going to come from this. One question. The present reality, though, is this, that the church in this age and in every age is commingled. That is, that when the gathered community uh, comes together on the Lord's Day to worship, it consists of the converted mingled in with the unregenerate believer. There are believers and pretenders in every assembly. There are the delivered who are in fellowship with the deluded. The Those who have been made alive are fellowshipping with liars. It happens everywhere you go, in every church and in every age. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. I want to look at chapter 13 for a moment. Matthew 13. Let's look at verses uh, 24 through 30 and then uh, 36 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds, uh, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, uh, lest in the gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds, Jesus, and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So in this idea... There's a reality that's going on, and it goes on in every church, and it is promised in the Scriptures from Jesus himself that until the end of the age, when he comes to harvest his church, there will be weeds among the tares. There, they, I mean, uh, wheat. Uh, there will be weeds. There will be unbelievers, unregenerated people living and fellowshipping and worshiping with true confessors of Jesus. The reality is that... The enemy has sowed this, these weeds. And the weeds in the wheat are almost humanly indiscernible. They're almost humanly indiscernible. Have you ever seen a wheat and a tear side by side? They are nearly identical. It's hard to discern with the human eye which belongs to which. And until the end of the age, believers and the unregenerate, they are going to be commingled in the church. There then is in the church of Christ an ongoing natural conflict, isn't there? That's a natural conflict in the body of Christ. If when we gather, we know that there are believers and non-believers fellowshipping together, there's a natural 
natural conflict immediately. There's natural tension for the believer as we've been called to separate from the world, and yet we, we, we live in it. And this has been designed by the enemy who has planted unbelievers in the household of faith. Now, I hope that as we sit here, we do this. And I want you to do this all morning long here as we continue in this passage. Is it me? Keep asking yourself that question. Is it me? In our present time, instead of insisting on godliness in the church, the church has compromised for the worldly. See, the world is too much with us. As we've been studying James, we have seen that he's been describing these tests that prove out genuine faith. When trials come, steadfast faith and trust is produced in the genuine believer. The weeds, the pretenders, they uh, fail to produce fruit that is in keeping with repentance, as we looked at. When the heat is on, when the heat is on, the weeds, the false confessors, they wither. The genuine remain steadfast under trial, and they will receive the crown of life. The genuine believer is slow to speak and quick to listen, not only hearing the word of God, but living according to it. The justified by faith in Christ look upon the cross of Jesus and find that but for God's mercy they deserved judgment. The unconverted look upon the cross with hardened hearts, supposing that judgment somehow belongs to them. As we saw last week in chapter 3, the born again recognize that the residual sin in their heart becomes apparent as soon as we open our mouths. As soon as we speak, residual, we, if we talk long enough, if you, any one of us are in here in this room and we talk long enough, it will reveal the residual sin that is left in our hearts. And that's why James says, who can guard the tongue? Who can have mastery over? It is a, it is, it is a plethora of evil. It is a fire from the pit of hell, right? Who can do that? Because that residual sin still dwells in us. And if we talk long enough, we're going to recognize, uh, that, uh, we speak often with unguarded, unpiloted lips. The unbeliever always speaks with unguarded, unpiloted lips, right? Directionless words. The worldly person, person speaks with no regard, though, to their uh, unguarded, unpiloted lips. They, they have no regard to the poisonous effects of their words. And so James here has posed a question uh, to the community of faith to ponder. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And I pose to you several questions I want you to consider as well as that as we go through this Text. The first question, most importantly, are you in the faith? Secondly, have you examined yourself to know if Christ be in you? Third, are you engaged in a battle against the residual sin in your life? Are you working, aiming at emptying yourself of the stain of the world? Are you living a life distinct and separate? Is there a discernible difference between yourself and your co-workers as it pertains to the affections of your heart? Are you passing the test? And James here poses what causes fights and what causes uh, quarrels among you. 
back to chapter 4. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This section reiterates what we saw a few weeks ago from James uh, 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. As we said before, the heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. The church being commingled with unbelievers has a natural conflict. The unbeliever is battling a heart condition. The unconverted are gathered in the church and they are still a slave to the passions of their heart and therefore they war with the proclamation of the gospel that's presented to them on each Lord's Day. The unregenerate wars against God from the heart. Although they might claim to be in Christ, their heart is at war with His rule and reign. There, there are confessors of Jesus who live morally upright lives, who war against God. They war against Jesus' rule and reign because their heart is still a slave to their sin and to their passion. The believers who are gathered here this morning are also at war in their hearts. Although they love God, their hearts have a residual sin, and that causes fights and quarrels with the converted and with the unconverted. These passions of our heart cause us to quarrel with those who believe and those who don't believe. It causes quarrels and fights among us because our passions are more important, right? How many times have, have you decided that you wanted to be right rather than to be loving? I know that's me. I don't know how many times I've wanted to be right. I'm right. I need to be right. Well, that's the residual sin of pride coming out of my heart, is it not? That I'd rather be right than be loving, than to be caring. The heart covets the things, doesn't it? Sometimes even in believers, the heart covets the things that the world has. The world has certain things and our heart just desires it, has passions for it. Even though we know, we know also in some place in our heart that that's wrong. I mean, we get the sense that it's wrong to be passionate about the things that the world is passionate about, but yet it rises up in us. And we want the things that the world wants, that the world has. We look upon that sometimes with jealousy. The residual sin in a believer's heart also causes them sometimes to speak ill of those who gather with them, both the converted and the unconverted. Believers' prayers are sometimes unanswered because they desire to spend the blessings of God on their residual sin. I'm asking God for blessings because I want to spend His goodness on the residual sin that I embrace and love so much. Believers' prayers are often left unanswered because they want to spend those blessings that God had given them uh, to satisfy that residual sin in their heart. The unregenerate pray in a kind of perfunctory way. That is, that they pray for their meals, maybe, and they pray, you know, for 
the blessings of God, but in no way do they seek wisdom from God because they would first need to be freed from their enslavement to the passions of their heart. They would first need to be freed from sin through Jesus Christ in order to pray to God in a way that says, Lord, your will be done. I surrender all as we sang. And you might even sit and have sit with people who've confessed Jesus and who can sing all the songs and they know all the words. They, they know all the scriptures and they pray beautiful prayers. But they don't have the Lord ruling and reigning in their life and in their heart. They really don't. They're pretenders. They think they're something, but they really aren't. Examine yourselves this morning. Are you in the faith? Are you at war with your heart's passion for sin? Or are you hard-heartedly at war with Christ's complete rule and reign? You have to ask yourself that in your heart, and only the Holy Spirit of God knows the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. God knows the answer to the question in your heart, but I want you to ponder that this morning. Do I want Christ and just his benefits? Or do I want Christ to really rule and reign over me? There might be the difference between the converted and the unconverted. Let us look at the second cause of quarrels in the commingled church, and it's the problem of worldliness. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James uses an Old Testament language here when he's talking to them, and he calls them an adulterous people. Well, it used to be that only Jews could be considered adulterous people because they were the only people under the covenant, right? Only, only a Jew could really be labeled an adulterer because a Jew was bound in a covenant relationship with God, right? And Gentiles couldn't be considered adulterous. He's using this covenant language because these Jewish Christians would have understood this, that they are the chosen of God, that they are selected by God's will, by God's prerogative, according to God's mercy, that they have been called out of the world and called to Christ. They've been called to live according to the covenant, according to the law of love. And he would say here, you're adulterous. You are mixing the system of the world with the pursuit of godliness, much like the indictment against Israel was in the prior covenant in Ezekiel 16. In verse 28, he says it pointedly. Ezekiel says, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. The world is too much with us. We allow the worldly to belong before they believe, often. We share the Lord's Supper with those who have no credible confession of faith. We sometimes have sung the songs that the world sings. We, and when I say we, I don't mean necessarily 
always just us, but I mean we collectively uh, as the church. Uh, we have preferred style over substance in our gatherings. We have, in some cases, choose elders based on worldly criteria. The church today has many unconverted preachers. There are many unconverted preachers preaching a message of worldly values and not the dictates of God's Word. The world is too much with us. And the world and its system are at war with God. And yet, oftentimes, isn't it that same system that guides the American church? That seeker-friendly, to me, is just a soft-pedaled phrase for consumer idolatry and worldliness. It is to commit adultery against God, to seek and befriend the world, and thus dumb everything down that James has previously been teaching to us. Because what he's been teaching to us as individuals, and I hope that you have glommed onto this, because probably for the last five weeks, um, the message could almost have always been the same. Behavior matters. Behavior matters. The pursuit of godliness is what matters in our lives. And that these trials, these tests that come, they, that prove out this genuineness, right? they prove out in, in behavior in certain behaviors that are godly, certain pursuits that are godly, that, that proves out that steadfast faith. James has been teaching that behavior matters, that godliness matters over worldliness. So I asked this morning, examine yourself. Are you at war with God, or do you fight against the residual worldliness in your life? See, again, like... We have been separated from the world, and, and I and I know many of you and would confess that you guys are not worldly people, that you are believers and followers of Jesus, and your life has been transformed, and you are living sold-out lives for Christ, right? But I also know this, that in us, in each one of us, there's a little bit of residual worldliness still hanging on. There's still a bit of, of a passion and a desire for the things that the world has, and what I'm asking this morning, are you examining, are you fighting against that? Are you, are you aiming to remove that worldliness from you day by day? And are you dealing with the residual sin of your heart day in and day out? Are you at battle? Are you in the right war? You see, the right war, this is, he's asking this question. Why are there quarrels and why are there fights among you? If there are, you're in the wrong war, friend. Don't be fighting with the people sitting next to you in the pew or in the seat. That's not your fight, friend. Your fight is against the residual sin of your heart and the passions that, 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 that come manifest. Your, your fight, friends, is to fight against the worldliness and the desires that you have for what the world wants. That's your fight. And that's kind of what he's posing here. That's the real fight. I've shared this quote with you before from Stephen Lawson, but I want to share it again because I just love it in that it sums up what the preacher of God's word ought to do today in the pursuit of godliness and the fight against worldliness as we gather as a church. He says, I call you this day to wield the sword, 
to hold forth the mirror, to scatter the seed, to serve the milk, to hold up the lamp, to spread the flame, to swing the hammer, to stop with secular wisdom in the pulpit, cancel the entertainment in the church, fire the drama team, get rid of the stick, unplug the colored lights, put the pulpit back in the center of the building, stand up like a man, open the Bible, lift it up, let it out, and let it fly. It is the invincible power of the inerrant Word of God that saves. Amen? Amen. I think that sums it up. The Holy Spirit of God is jealous for His people. He's jealous for us. He is calling those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is calling us to a singular allegiance to Him. Those He wants without a duplicitous heart. Those who are not double-minded in regard to the doctrines of Scripture and marrying the doctrines of Scripture with the doctrines of the world. Examine yourself. Are you prideful about your ability to blend the world with the godly? Are you of the faith? Are you of the world? Are you double-hearted, double-minded? Well, double-hearted, double-minded people are at war within themselves, with each other, and with God. Double-minded, double-hearted people are at war with themselves. They're at war with each other, and they're at war with God. But God, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The unconverted among us is a slave to the passions of their hearts. The overriding passion of the unconverted heart is to say this, I will not have this man rule over me. That is the overriding passion of the unconverted heart. I will not have this man rule over me, meaning Jesus. The residual sin in a believer's heart is to believe that they can serve God while seeking out pride-pleasing pleasures. And yet, here we are in the warehouse of the Lord gathered together. Here we are. So we ask, what then is the solution? You've presented the problem, James. You've presented the, the, presented the problems here, Jeff, this morning. What then is the solution? The antidote for the unbeliever. The antidote for the duplicitous Christian this morning. First, I say it is examine whether you be in the faith. Second, ask yourself if there's evidence of Christ dwelling in you. Third, are you at war with sin? Are you at war with sin? Are you at war with people? Are you at war with God's rule and God's reign? The antidote is given for the unconverted and the duplicitous Christian in verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Everyone in this room, currently, the unbelievers... And the born again must understand the same thing. We must understand our wretched condition. 
We must repent of having sleepwalked through this life. We need to turn from proudly supposing that prosperity that, 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 we, that we love, that prosperity has lulled us to sleep. And that somehow prosperity is indicative of God's blessings. We need to rid ourselves of that thought. Our pride and our worldliness have inoculated the unbeliever from receiving the life-saving antidote of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think it is the church's fault that there are not more conversions happening on Sunday morning because we accept so much worldliness. And as we accept so much worldliness with one another as we are gathered, we actually give them an inoculation against the gospel. Because we tell them that the gospel is easy. That everything is easy. You can believe what you want to believe. You just say the name of Jesus and all is good for you. We tell them it's too easy. And we inoculate them from the truth of God's word. That, that God, the holy, righteous, good creator of all things, is the right judge. That his rule uh, stands still today. And that all of us were at one point separated from God by our sin. And we deserved every punishment that God could mete out. But God, by grace, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin. And that He, having mercy upon us, regenerated us that we might believe. And we responded to that in repentance and in faith and placing our trust in Christ, not just placing trust in His name, but placing trust in the person and the work of Jesus, submitting to His rule and reign from that point forward. That's the life-giving gospel. But when we don't share that gospel or when we dumb that gospel down to be worldly, to be kind, to be seeker-friendly, you know, don't talk about the blood because the blood is offensive. I heard that said in a uh, local church here in Yamhill County. We don't preach the blood of Jesus Christ because the blood is offensive. Yeah, okay. You are offensive to holy God, friend. You need to hear that message. And so, of course, the cross and the blood of Christ is offensive. Of course it is. And we need to get to ourselves to this place where we rid ourselves of our pride and our worldliness, where we engage in the right war, friends. Our war is not to fight against unbelievers. It's not to fight against unbelievers. There are things that incense us when we watch the news, right? And we get mad and we want to fight against those people. Those are unbelievers. That's not your fight. There are unbelievers who are probably gathered with you, who act in ways that are ungodly, and you recognize them. But that's not your fight. You've got your own worldliness, your own heart to fight with. You've got your own stuff to be engaged in. And you need to tell the truth about from the scriptures that godliness matters. You need to model good behavior. You need to speak about good behavior. But you're not there condemning that brother or getting in a fight with that brother because that's not your fight. Has anybody ever been beaten into the kingdom of God? I don't think so. 
I don't, I don't see a record of anybody being beaten into the kingdom. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, is it not? It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. The church needs to engage in the right war. And our fight is against sin. Our fight is against worldliness that we have um, proudly embraced. And I think we all must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must flee the devil and flee the system that this world and its worldly thoughts and worldly behaviors. It must be purged from our lives personally, and we should aim to purge it from our church collectively. We must be brought to our knees for our sins and repent of our celebration of worldliness. That's what he's getting at here in in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not telling you to be all depressed. But he's saying we should not be, we should, we should repent and feel sorry for the ways in which we've just embraced the world. The ways in which we have dumbed down the residual sin of our own hearts. It should cause us to mourn and to weep over that instead of celebrating it. And I think often I've been in churches and Joe has been with me at times when we celebrated sin, rewarded it, and celebrated it. I hope that it would break our heart. That our sin and our worldliness would just break our hearts. James promises us this, that he says we ought to examine I think this is saying that we ought to examine uh, whether or not we be in the faith and we should fall to our knees before God and we should ask God that he might grant us repentance and faith, uh, maybe for the first time, but grant us repentance and faith once again. James promises in this text, though, that if we humble ourselves, if we flee from the devil and draw near to God, that God will draw near to us. And I say this, for those of us among us who might be unconverted this morning, call on the name of Jesus and he will in no wise cast you out. I don't care how far you've been, he will in no wise cast you out. And I want to end our message this morning with the words of Jesus in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Let us take a moment of silence. Father God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for each one that you have drawn here. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would be at work in us to uh, fight against residual sin in our lives, to fight against worldliness, that we would reject the things of the world and be kingdom-minded people who live in the world, redeeming it for you and for your kingdom and for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.